Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. We've heard Rayleigh often talk about the importance of the team and the lab in assisted reproductive technology. Today, in this episode, we are joined by David Gardner, the Scientific Director of Melbourne IVF. For nearly four decades, David has been at the forefront of embryology and has made many highly significant discoveries and contributions to reproductive medicine that have helped shape the field as we know it today. It has been estimated that as a direct result of his research endeavours and their clinical translation, over 3 million children more have been born through IVF that would otherwise have not been conceived. David has over 300 publications and 25,000 citations, so for those looking for more information, I will put a web link in the show notes. Welcome David, thank you for joining us today on Knocked Up. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Now today our episode is a bit sciencey, but you're going to explain everything beautifully for us and we're not going to get confused. Thank you in advance. I think I'll just jump in there and just say that we are so grateful for David coming on our podcast. For those who don't know, David Gardner is an absolute international superstar of IVF and has been instrumental in many of the huge leap for leaps forward in IVF over the last few decades. So we are so honoured to have you on our podcast and so excited to work with you at Melbourne IVF. And modestly, David, you, you never told us that the Gardner grading system is you. That is me, yeah, that is me. It's, it's quite old now, but that was, that was definitely me. It's quite, <laughs> it's quite a funny story too. Um, well, tell us, we love funny stories. Okay, so it was back in the in the 1990s when we, our team worked out how to grow the human embryo for five days. And <clears throat> we get to a, a stage of development called the blastocyst. And it's this beautiful ball of cells. And it's got two cell types. The outer cells implant into the endometrium, the lining of the uterus. And there's a small group of cells inside this ball uh, very imaginatively called the inner cell mass. And it's from that that the baby forms. So for the first time, we're growing these embryos routinely. And um, I I was saying to the other embryologists, oh, this is beautiful. Or the next embryo would look at and say, oh, it's gorgeous. And after a few weeks, they say, David, you know, we can hardly write down beautiful, gorgeous every time you look at an embryo. It's not very, it's not not very objective. We We need to come up with a grading system. So um, I then, and this was really was in the mid-90s, um, we had a lot of Polaroids of embryos that we'd taken um, on the morning of day five when the embryo forms this beautiful embryo, the blastocyst. So I, I went back to my office and I spread them all out in front of me and I sort of ranked them in size and then I started to look at the embryos and decide what was important 
and, and rationalize it. And then I wrote it all out. And I did it all in a matter of hours. And I wrote, went back to the lab and said, right, this is, this is how we're going to do it. Uh, I said, it's really straightforward. We'll call it the alpha numeric system. So it's got a number and a letter. So A, been very good. And the number was for the size of the embryo. And it was really practical. And we were very happy. <laughs> then a few years later, we realized um, we should look at how predictive it was at selecting embryos for pregnancy. And it turned out to be incredibly predictive. And that year was 1999. So 21 years later, I'm really flattered, quite humbled, really, that it's become the international grading system uh, in all IVF clinics everywhere. So uh, everywhere I go, I sort of hear this Gardner Gray and go, oh, yeah, that was that one afternoon I spent in my but there was a there was a lot leading up to that one afternoon, though, David. <laughs> yeah, it was like it was a, an overnight success, ten years in the making. But um, yeah, it was it was really nice to be able to, to put that together, and it's it stood the test of time. So, just for our listeners who may themselves be undertaking IVF at the moment, can you tell us a little bit of a summary of the Gardner grading system, and also? I was going to give you a little bit of a case study of an embryo that we could pick, mm-hmm. say, for example, a 4BB embryo, because sure. that's an embryo that we see quite commonly in clinical yeah. practice and are very happy to transfer to try and make a baby. But many of my patients and many of our listeners are very informed and they do a lot of reading and they're also, some of them like me, a bit of a type A personality and they want everything to be AA and yeah. they get a bit upset when they see an embryo that's not AA. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you those two challenges. One is summarise your grading system and then okay. also um, tell us what does it mean to an embryo in terms of making a baby? Oh, really good questions. Really good questions. Okay, so the, the grading system was really straightforward. Um this blastocyst, it's, it's a bit like uh, a balloon. It just it, it fills with fluid. It's like a water balloon there. So it fills with fluid until such time as it's ready to implant. Now, so the first thing we realize is that when, uh, if you think about blowing a balloon up, that's a better analogy. If you think about blowing a balloon up, it takes a lot of energy to fill the balloon with air. You know, you get quite tired blowing that balloon up. So in the same way, it takes energy for the embryo to, to blow itself up, as it were. So we made the conclusion that the bigger the embryo, the healthier it was because it was energetically more more active. It was a a competent embryo. So that was the first thing. And then with regards to the grade, we give the inner cell mass the first letter, A, B, or C. The A means that there's, there's many, many cells present, and they've collectively got together and formed a very nice tight bundle. A B is there's many cells, so it's really good, Uh, but they've not quite condensed down into a smaller group of cells. And C means we can't really see the cells. When we look at the outer layer of cells, this thing called the trophectoderm, which implants into the endometrium. Again, A meant many, many cells that we could see was very tightly packed uh, into a a group of cells, which we refer to as an epithelium, because they're all stitched together, a bit like uh, the outside of a soccer ball. Um, They're all stitched together very nicely. A B would be, again, still very good, but not as many cells. And C would be very few cells. 
So what we determined was if you have an, an AA embryo, the implantation and baby rate was exceptionally high. But to our delight, the BBs also did very, very well. So you're quite right, really. If you have a BB, you've got a really great chance that that is going to form a, a fetus and a baby. It's when we see a C in the diagnosis of the embryo, then we go, sadly, that's not the best outcome. Having said that, they can still give babies, just not at the same frequency that we would expect from the better grades. So if it was a BB, I would be very happy. And in fact, it's, it's a really interesting comment that you made the BB selection, because now worldwide, the cutoff for a good blastocyst is exactly what you just said, a BB. So when people talk about the Gardner grade and a really good embryo, BB and above, you're in. That's, that's the good news. Thank you so much. That was an amazing summary. And David, can you tell us how things have changed from those early days where you first applied the visual assessment of the progress of an embryo to translate to its potential to make a baby? We've now moved forward to have technology assist us and we can watch embryos in our embryoscope incubators and understand much more about their journey from being a sperm and an egg to becoming an an embryo we transfer. Can you talk a little bit about how morphokinetic analysis, which is what we call watching the embryos grow and analysing their shape and progress and the interface with artificial intelligence systems is developing because that's super exciting. It is. It's actually, use the phrase, mind-blowing would not do it justice. Um, let, let me take you back. When we were in the early days of IVF, even it's 30, 40 years ago, but even only 10 years ago, when we wanted to grade the embryo, what we had to do was physically go into the incubator, take it out, walk over to a microscope, put it on the microscope, and have a look. And then we'd take a few minutes having a look, making the decision, and then putting it back into the incubator. So during the whole week, first week of its life, we would probably look maybe twice, twice. Now, the analogy I would take is like your kid is growing up from a baby to a teenager and you decide just to take two photographs. This is the ninth birthday and this is the 18th birthday. Okay. Time lapse came along and this is having um, a camera inside the incubator. So we don't have to remove the, the embryo from its dish or anything. It's there inside. And we can take images every 10 minutes or so. So if you think about that, um, because we're not taking the embryo out, I jokingly refer to the time-lapse machine as a womb with a view because we leave the embryo inside <laughs> and we're still watching it. And because we're watching it every 10 minutes, the analogy would be is that now we've got a video camera. And rather than just looking at static Polaroids and trying to interpret how happy the child was, how healthy the child was, We've actually got the whole movie that can tell you all the events that led up to being 18, as it were. In this case, it's only a week. But what was really fascinating when we started to do this was we started to see things that we never saw before. Because guess what? All the interesting stuff was happening at 2 a.m. And it was like we'd seen the embryo with with new eyes. It was quite, for someone who'd done this for 30 odd years before he saw a time lapse, and then to see the embryos that you thought you knew do something different simply, you know, was, was like a, a, an incredible moment. 
Okay, so now we've got a video. We have all this information. What do we do with it? Well, <clears throat> we, we thought we were quite smart by doing what we call annotation. So we would take the time that the embryo sort of cleaved to a two-cell and wrote it, wrote it down. And then how long did it take to get to a three-cell, a four-cell, an eight-cell? When did it start to form the blastocyst? And so we could write down all of these times. And then we could do that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of embryos. And then we created what we called an algorithm, which is basically an equation to say which of these times are most associated with that embryo giving as a baby. And of course, we would add on the grading system as well. The Gardner grade was part of the algorithm. And that's been incredibly successful. <clears throat> and we ended up with a thing called the KID score. KID stands for Known Implantation Data. <laughs> Quite nice. So we took all that data and made a KID score, and it was a, a model, and it works very well. Surprise, surprise, it's better than just using my grading system because you're using a lot more information. But we were still only using tiny bits of the information. Imagine if you could take all of that information and then make an analysis. Well, of course, unfortunately, even though we think we're quite clever, <laughs> I don't know anybody who could do that. But luckily, artificial intelligence can. So over the last two to three years, we've been very fortunate in working with some AI engineers. Um, the, the, the gentleman in, who was driving this was Dr. Angus Tran from New South Wales. And what he did is was able to take the entire video of the first week of human life and give it to the computer. And all he told the computer was, did this embryo, this one was pregnant, this one was not pregnant. Okay, so this embryo gave you a pregnancy, this one didn't. What's the difference? And rather than it, him giving the computer a couple of images and a couple of embryos, because Virtus upon which, you know, Melbourne IVF is part of the bigger Virtus group, has access to thousands and thousands of embryos, the artificial intelligence actually trained itself on over 10 million images. Okay. And it took 10 million images, and it took the supercomputer five days to think about it. I mean, that's the best way I can con convey it. It literally went through cycles and cycles and cycles of saying, is that right? No. Okay, I'll go back and think again. Is that right? No. I'll go back and come and think again. At the end of that five days, it could predict which embryo had the best chance of giving us a pregnancy into about the 94 percentile, which I hate to admit is about 20% better than me. <laughs> um, that's where we're at, and that's incredibly exciting. The other thing it takes out of it is the human factor. Okay, so again, you know, um, it's like I look at an embryo and I, I give it a grade, but my colleague could come along and give an embryo, look at the same embryo, but might not quite see the things I'm seeing, so might give it a slightly different grade. Well, computers don't care. They, they see what they see and do it. So it's incredibly reproducible. So that's really exciting. So that's a little bit about artificial intelligence. So where we're at now is we've created so much data on this is that we're running a prospective randomized trial at Melbourne IVF, actually, and across Australia throughout Virtus. And we're trying to show that the computer is exactly as good as we are. So it takes away the, the human variation. Uh, it's incredibly exciting. Yeah. 
So I'm so encouraging of all my patients to participate in the wonderful trials that we have at the real cutting edge of IVF technology at Melbourne IVF. David, from a patient perspective, can you explore the advantages of participating and why a patient might be motivated to participate in a randomised control trial? Yeah, that, that's a great question. That's a really important question. So what, what I'd like to explain to, to anybody and everybody who's listening is that when we get to the point of doing a, a randomised trial, there's probably five to ten years basic research that's led to that trial. Uh, so it's not Which is so you know, important. Right. I, I didn't wake up that morning and go, hmm, this is a great idea. Let's just try that. Far from it. It goes through a whole series of basic experimentation and analyses with regards to um, anything that enters the IVF lab, then they usually tried and tested on animal models well before. And then pilot studies are done to test their safety and efficacy. And then you finally get into the prospective randomized trial. So the good news is that uh, the potential of anything negative happening is so remote, so remote. But you do have the possibility of being uh, in a treatment group that could greatly reduce your time to pregnancy. And in some cases, depending on the trial, increase your chances of having a pregnancy. So I think my, my words, and, and I'm, I'm a great, you know, I've been doing this for so long. I did my first IVF case back in, gosh, in the 80s. Um, I, I am, would only do things that I really, truly believed were a great benefit to the couple. Yeah. And I think that's really important to know because I hear about a, a medical trial and I don't think I want to be the guinea pig when in actual fact you're not the guinea pig because that's happened five, ten years before, I'm Absolutely. getting the first yeah. experience of, of the absolute cutting-edge science. Yep. That's exactly how it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Another trial, David, that we have at Melbourne IVF that you've brought to us, which I'm oh. also very excited about, is the antioxidant trial. Yes. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that stream of treatment and that trial? Because I have many patients of mine who I've asked to participate in this trial, believing that it could be of great benefit to them. This is one of the most exciting recent developments we've, we've made in, in embryology, full stop. And um, it, it's really interesting because I've been actually working on this for 30 odd years. And it's, it's in the last few years, we've made some really key discoveries that have brought us to this trial. Um, but, but to sort of get into antioxidants, you have to ask yourself the question, why do we need antioxidants? And I think to, to address that question, I have to tell you something that it's one of these paradoxes in life that the very gas that we need to give us life, oxygen, is ultimately responsible for our aging demise and ultimately our death. And that's because oxygen is a very pathological gas. And I'll explain that in a minute as I go along. So for us to create energy, we need to burn fuel. Um, for those who, who are interested, we do it through an organelle called mitochondria, mostly. And basically, it's just like you burn fuel in a fire, but we take the fuel in terms of our nutrients, our foods, and our mitochondria use oxygen to create energy from them. It's, a, it's an oxidative process. The downside is that through this process, 
you get a thing called reactive oxygen species. And this is a byproduct. And this is really highly detrimental to our cells. It damages our DNA, our membranes. Basically, the organelles inside our cells start to suffer. And this is a cumulative damage. And with regards to us as individuals, to all of us listening, this is why we age. It's, it's accumulation of oxidative damage in our bodies. And ultimately, I hate to say, is that it comes to a point where our mitochondria, um, these basically are the batteries of our cells that give us all our energy, are so damaged that they start to break down. And it's when the mitochondria break down in our adult bodies is when we start to suffer from a lot of pathologies. And, of course, anything that's uh, neuromuscular or even neurological are typically associated with mitochondrial breakdown. So keeping your mitochondria happy is essential for us in our health span, our, our longevity. Now, if we extrapolate this to sperm, eggs, and embryos, in the reproductive tracts, it turns out they're protected with antioxidant systems. In much the same way we talk about having antioxidants in our diets, antioxidants are present in seminal fluid, oviduct fluid, uterine fluid, to protect our gametes and embryos. But sadly, when we move to our laboratory, there aren't any antioxidants. And so the embryos, the sperm, are at greater risk of these reactive oxygen species causing damage. So our hypothesis was, hey, let's put them back into the media that surround the cells and see what happens. So the punchline of a very long story would have been, we found three in particular that had a profound effect on the development of the mouse embryo in IVF, and we got more babies. So we then did a, a pilot study. I did this with colleagues in Japan over several years. Um, and what we found, much to our delight, was that antioxidants increased pregnancy rates in the older patients. And older patient means anybody over 35. Mm. So if you're over 35, it looks like antioxidants can absolutely help alleviate some of this age-induced and associated oxidative damage. And what we're doing at Melbourne IVF now is we're taking that pilot study, and guess what? We're doing a prospective randomized study that's powered to see you know, exactly who's going to benefit from these antioxidants in culture. So that's what we're doing. Amazing. Um, so, David, one thing I also wanted to talk to you about, which is what a lot of lay kind of people think about when they hear about stem cell research, is that they come stem cells come from embryos. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how do we use embryos in research that might be interesting to patients or maybe make patients feel a bit uncomfortable, really, when they think about stem cell research? Okay. Um, in essence, when I refer to that Gardner grading system, um, I talked about a group of cells called the inner cell mass. And I, I said that that's the group of tissues that goes on to form the baby. All right. Now, imagine we didn't put that blastocyst back into the uterus. We just left it in the culture dish. Bless its heart. What it tries to do, it tries to implant into the culture dish. And so <laughs> the cells spread out and try and invade into the plastic. And that group of the cells, inner cell mass, stays right on top of them. And under the correct conditions, you can just grow them for a few days on top. And then finally, literally, you just go in with a pipette and pull them off. 
and those are now embryonic stem cells because they have the capacity no longer to be a baby because we don't put them back into a uterus. They have the capacity to be any cell in your body. So what we call, they're, they're called pluripotent. They have the potency to become every cell in your body. Um, what's really exciting about that from a therapeutic point of view is that if you had um, a heart attack and there's ischemic tissue, dead tissue in your heart, it doesn't regenerate itself. Nice. But you can program these embryonic stem cells to become heart cells. And then you could put those heart cells back into your cardiac tissue and help to regenerate your heart. If you have a blood disease, <clears throat> you could theoretically create blood cells. Keep on going. The analogies, the tissues are there for everyone to select and grow. And so far in the, in the dish, we've grown heart cells. We can grow nervous tissue in the dish from these cells. It's absolutely remarkable. remarkable. So the point is, yes, it, it sounds a little bit Frankenstein-like that you take in these tissues to create a bit of brain or a bit of heart or a bit of kidney. But the reality is they have the capacity to save your life. Right. And if you took stem cells from your own body and, and, and you, you can actually do that, um, you could technically regenerate tissues that are damaged in your body. So that's what they're there for. That's how we derive them. And um, their potential is, is promising, but we're still a long way from a clinical use with them. Yeah, I actually use that analogy when I talk to patients when an embryo is thawed for transfer and it loses some of its cells, uh, explaining that they are pluripotent stem cells and they do have some regenerative potential. So even if an embryo loses some of its cells when we warm it from the freeze, it can still make a baby. Yes, absolutely. Because we have this, what we call adaptive development. And exactly as you said earlier, you can lose quite a few cells and still be happy. And this is not as if the child is going to be grown, you know, it's going to be born smaller. It doesn't. It's born at the same size as another child. So, yes, that's interesting. It just shows you the, the absolute wonderment of the early few days of life in my mind. That's amazing. So, David, I'm just going to ask you something a little bit controversial because mm. that's what I like to do. <laughs> um, we have been in the IVF world criticized for the use of quote-unquote add-ons in yeah. mm -hmm. IVF medicine, yeah. uh, especially relating to new developments that have not yet really been on the scene for long enough to have a lot of data yeah. on them in clinical use. One of those is time-lapse imaging and incubation. Yeah. Can you rebut why time-lapse imaging is not an add-on in IVF? Sure. Sure. I think the problem was, and why people called it an add-on, was when it was created, people jumped to the false conclusion that it was going to revolutionize pregnancy rates or something. You know, it was going to, it's just going to absolutely change everybody's clinic, um, and we would get um, all these benefits. And I think the hype was so big that when people tried it and didn't quite live up to its expectations, then they got disillusioned and then people started to say, well, this, this has no value. But actually, for the reasons I alluded to before, it's invaluable. And I've been doing this for nearly 40 years and the, the data that we've created and our understanding of how embryos develop from time-lapse could never have been done otherwise. 
We could never have created selection algorithms. We could never have used artificial intelligence. There are so many values to having time-lapse in your lab. It's a bit like saying, you know, okay, you've got a, we've all got smartphones um, and we've got video on them. And it's a bit like saying, well, yeah, we're not going to use it though. Of course you're going to use it because you know it has value. You can record things. And from that, you get information. So time-lapse is, is highly valuable to the clinic. And one of the things it does, I, I kind of, if I took the two things we've talked about quite a bit today, which is time-lapse and antioxidants, okay, they do different things. And the whole premise of, of what we do is what I call time to pregnancy and pregnancy rates, okay? And what I mean by time to pregnancy is how quickly can we get you pregnant? Okay, is it one cycle, two cycles, three cycles, etc.? Time to pregnancy. The second one is the pregnancy rate. And that is how many patients are we going to get pregnant? Is it 40%, 50%, 60%, 70%? They're very different. What time-lapse does with artificial intelligence, it can reduce time to pregnancy by helping us to select the best embryo for transfer as soon as possible. So rather than wait to the third cycle to get the best embryo, artificial intelligence through time-lapse should be able to give us that embryo quicker. And that's that's where we're at with that, it, those kind of technologies. In contrast, as I just alluded to with antioxidants, we saw an increase in pregnancy rates in the older patients. So actually we're getting more patients pregnant. Put those two together and it becomes a bit exciting because what we're saying is actually with the combination of artificial intelligence time-lapse combined with antioxidants, we're going to get more pregnancies and we're going to get them quicker. That's really exciting because you can't overstate the significance of time to pregnancy. We don't want to put patients through transfer after transfer if we can do it on the first go. I think that's really important. Yeah, because it reduces the cost burden and also the emotional and physical burden of IVF. And if we can do that, it improves our patient experience, which is what we're all about. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I'm, like I said, I can remember my first IVF case and um, I, was, I was doing the name check on the patient's arm. And rather than me grabbing her wrist, she grabbed mine. And I looked into her eyes and she was crying, but not tears that I'd ever seen before. It was tears of desperation, sheer desperation. And she just looked at me and she goes, please, please get me pregnant. And that was a life-changing event. Yeah. And did you? Yeah, we did. But, you know, we don't get everyone pregnant. And that just makes me go back to the lab and work harder. And I think that's yeah. my motivation. She's my motivation 30, 40 years later, she's my motivation to keep doing this, getting up. And some days, you know, things work in the lab and you, your, your results look great and you've made a discovery and some days you don't. But on those days you don't, I always think of her and go back the next day and, and try and do a better job. Yeah. David, you're talking about 20, 30 years ago. 20, 30 yeah. years ago, a lot of this didn't really exist or it was very new. Yeah. Do you want to tell us how you got started in reproductive <laughs> technology? Yeah, thank you. Um, it was it was thirty seven years ago, <laughs> and I was uh, <laughs> very uh, new. Uh, Isn't the first IVF baby forty? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was a very um, 
She's actually now 42, Louise Brown. So yes. it was five years after, but it was in England. And yes. I was doing my undergraduate training and in embryology. Um, I was doing my what we call my honours year in embryology, which I then went on to do my PhD in. And during that time, I actually, on a twist of fate, got to meet and to know uh, Professor Robert Edwards. And Edwards and Steptoe did create the world's first test tube baby. I was 20 years old, and I met and got to know the you know IVF pioneer Bob Edwards, who went on to be a fantastic mentor for my entire career. I'd already fallen in love with embryology, and when I met Bob, I realized that not only could science do great things, but here I could translate it into clinical practice. And that was that, that was it. So I did my PhD in York. And then from then, I was very fortunate. I got a fellowship in cellular and molecular physiology at Harvard Medical School. So I went to Boston. And from Boston, uh, I then went to um, Monash Medical Center in, um, in Melbourne where I worked with Carl Wood and Alan Trounson for eight years and did my clinical training uh, and uh, did a lot of the work that led to what we call blastocyst culture. And then in the late 90s, I was recruited to America. I went to Colorado and became scientific director of the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine, which became America's number one program, which was really exciting. And it was there that we really translated a lot of... Um, a lot of things into what became clinical practice, such as blastocyst culture and degrading and vitrification and, and these kind of things. And then 10 years ago, 12 years ago, actually, I was recruited to come back to Australia, which was one of the best things that ever happened. Now, this puts some into context. In 1995, about the time I was moving to the States, the average number of embryos being transferred was five. And America had, in fact, the world had um, almost an IVF epidemic of multiple gestations. Yes. And the problem was people were having triplets and quads, never mind twins. Um, and this, of course, was a real health problem, not only for the babies, but, of course, for the mother. Mm. Uh, I was charged. It was quite sweet. On my first day arriving in America, um, the director of the program says, you have one job, get rid of the multiple pregnancies. And within a few years, we had blastocyst culture. And within a few years, we went to single blastocyst transfer. So, yeah, I kind of feel that was a really good day in the office. Yeah, definitely. And now you're at Melbourne IVF. Yes. Tell us about Melbourne IVF. Yeah, tell us about how Melbourne IVF managed to managed to kind of win you over because it's an amazing amazing lab we have at Melbourne IVF. Can you tell us a bit about how the lab at Melbourne IVF is different to other labs in Victoria? Sure. When I came back to Australia, I actually I took an academic appointment at the University of Melbourne. And we set about doing a lot of basic research in um, the fields that we've been talking about. And it would be about four or five years ago, I was at a meeting um, and I was chairing a session with Dr. Lyndon Hale who's the medical director of Melbourne IVF. And we just got chatting. And I remember walking out of the session and the conversation got very energetic and animated about the kind of things we were doing and uh, how it had great clinical application. And within a few weeks, basically, I was sat in his office and started to work with the, with the clinic. It was that, that straightforward. 
And Lyndon and Fleur and Kate and Relia, the doctors have just been fantastic, so supportive of us. And um, I was very fortunate. One of the first things I did when I joined Melbourne IVF was recruit my lab manager from Denver, John Stevens. And John is a world-class embryologist, so it was buy one, get one free for Melbourne IVF that week. <laughs> and, and John and I set about transforming the lab into the 21st century lab that we wanted, and that included getting time-lapse and all the mm. technology we wanted to do and creating a successful platform upon which we could then start to do clinical trials. I'm delighted that over the last two years that John and I have really been able to, to get on and do things, we've increased the pregnancy rates over 10%. And now we're doing all these really fantastic clinical trials. So it's a tremendously exciting time to be at Melbourne IVF. I'm just thrilled. Yeah. I'm on a different side, obviously, not being medical. And people talk a lot about the expense of IVF and fertility treatment. Yeah. And yeah. it's obviously, well, I say obviously, maybe it's not obvious, but it mm -hmm. just seems that by going with Melbourne IVF, just listening to you speak today, there is so much that people don't think about when it comes to their fertility outcomes. And what's, what you're working on is, is what they're paying for, whether they realise it or not. And that's what gets the results. Yeah, uh, that's so true. And I, I think it's our job to help to uh, demystify the science and help the patients understand that it is an incredibly complex procedure. It sounds so simple. It's a bit like saying baseball is you throw the ball, you hit the ball, you catch the ball. If you've ever stood on a, you know, a mound, it's hard to throw that ball well. If you've ever stood with a bat in your hand, it's very difficult to hit a round ball with a round bat, et cetera, et cetera. IVF is just the same. You take the sperm, you add the sperm, you get an embryo, you grow it. Sounds so simple, but it's... Sounds so simple. I could do it at home, but no. <laughs> If you're lucky, you can. Yeah, well. <laughs> but for those patients, unfortunately, that's not how it works. Getting it to work in a laboratory is very complex. And to get it done successfully, it takes a lot of investment in technology. We have 20-plus um, amazing embryologists who are very, very skilled in what they do. And, of course, you couldn't do that without them. But you've got to remember it's called in vitro fertilization. So, you know, it's a very heavily dependent on the laboratory. And that investment is, is unfortunately where a lot of the money goes um, to be able to do what we do. So my, 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 my vision for the future is to build a new lab and have a wall, which is a window. So when patients come in, the first thing yes. they see is the lab. And they Absolutely. get an appreciation that it's real people who care about them. Yeah. And... They can see all the technology that's invested in helping them fulfill their dreams. And I think that's, you know, we're all in this together. That's the key thing. Yeah. And we all get up every day trying to help patients have their, have their families. Yeah. I mean, Raylia frequently says it's not just her and a nurse. It's her and a team, a huge team of people that, that help achieve each pregnancy. It, it, yeah, they say they say it takes a village to raise a child. It, it takes a village to make an IVF baby. That's for sure. It is, and I think that's lovely. I, I always say um, IVF is the biggest team sport I've ever played. <laughs> yes. It's huge. It's absolutely yeah. Everybody on that team have a role to play, and I and you mm -hmm. can't underestimate the significance of every member 
from the counsellors to the nurses who do the most amazing job in making sure the patients have got a hand to hold, someone to listen to them, to help reduce mm-hmm. their stress, to the doctors who do the diagnosis and, and uh, the care, and to the wonderful lab group who uh, you know, literally put things together for the patient. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, incredible. it's incredible to experience, and it's such a rewarding thing to do with your life. Well, thank you so much for coming on Knocked Up. We have absolutely adored having you on today, David. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely fascinating, David. I think we're going to get a request for you to come back on. I, I get the vibes. <laughs> but, David, usually at this stage we ask our, our guests where people can find them. Are you on any social media platforms? Where can our listeners find you? You know, I'm a social media dinosaur, um, so the best find me is on the Melbourne IVF web pages um, and through that. But if you want to know what I do in my professional life, there's a wonderful search engine called Google Scholar. Yes. Um, and if you type me in there, um, David K. Gardner, that's G-A-R-D-N-E-R, um, you will get um, a, a list and access to the works that we've done over the last four decades. And if, if anyone's interested in that, or if you've just got insomnia, whichever, um, you'll, you'll find <laughs> it. Thank you so much, David. It's been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Leigh. Brilliant.